Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. She was the aspirational lifestyle icon of her time, but behind the scenes, her life in Camelot was, perhaps, not quite as glorious as it has always been marketed to be. The end. Let's talk about Jackie Kennedy. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1929, Mother Teresa arrived in Calcutta to begin her India mission. Both Buck Rogers and Popeye debuted in the comic strips. Vatican City became a sovereign nation. J.C. Penney became the first department store to have stores in all 48 states. Black Thursday and Black Tuesday's stock market crashes triggered the Great Depression. And she shared a birth year with Martin Luther King, Audrey Hepburn, Liz Claiborne, Anne Frank, Imelda Marcos, Bob Newhart, Arnold Palmer, Barbara Walters, Grace Kelly, June Carter Cash, Barry Gordy, Dick Clark, and Christopher Plummer. Jacqueline Lee Bouvier was born on July 28, 1929 in Long Island, New York, and she was the first of the two daughters of John Vernou Bouvier III and Janet Norton Lee. She was born in Southampton, and you think, Southampton, is that part of the famous exclusive pricey summer resort Hamptons? Yes, it is. There's a series of little villages that make up this extremely pricey resort area now. But back then, it was just an up-and-coming summer area that was surrounded by potato farms. That's very romantical. I know, isn't it? (laughs) So Papa, who was always called Jack and sometimes called Black Jack because of his fabulous tan complexion. I want you, in your mind, to think of Rhett Butler. This is pre-Rhett Butler, but he might as well be a twin. (laughs) Papa was from a wealthy family, and the money had come from coal and timber originally, but a couple of generations had laundered it through land speculation and the stock market, so now it's a 100 years respectable money. I think that the main word to use about Papa was uh, macho. (laughs) The good and bad parts of the word macho. Yeah, I thought of him as a playboy, but macho works too, I guess. (laughs) Well, like you've got manly and suave and brave and you've also got womanizer and egocentric and... And gambler. Every time I saw blackjack and anything, I keep thinking gambling... Which is true. That's what he did. He drank, he gambled, he womanized. Well, he worked on Wall Street, so there's kind of a (laughs) superior form of gambling. (laughs) Well, he was a stockbroker in a family firm, and he man-about-towned it sort of spectacularly. Mama's people were also rich, but the money was newer. Super new, in fact, because her own father was the one who had made it big in real estate, speculation, and architecture. So you can put the back of your hand on your forehead. New money, huh? Her family was new money, where his was actually listed in the social register. But still, um, Janet was sent to all the right schools, the right Protestant waspy schools, even though her family was Catholic. She had a debut. She marketed herself and passed, should we say, as Episcopalian. And it is super hard for me to understand why that's even important. But again, I live in the modern day. Why does it matter? But to these people, it totally mattered. And here's the thing with both families. The Bouviers 
constructed this whole backstory mythology. They even put it in a little book called Our Forebears and connected them with this old aristocratic French family near Grenoble, which as it turns out was later proven to be stuff and nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) But I will tell you, these people got mileage and mileage, or would it be kilometers and kilometers since it's French, (laughs) out of this scenario well into the 60s. And Janet's family came from Irish stock, but they hid that behind this story of Confederate Civil War veterans. And again, it was in print. So they really wanted this story to be out that they were from this, you know, deep seated American war veteran family, even though it was, you know, Confederates. Oh, they played that story for so long that Jackie's mother later when of course, Jackie was famous. People referred to her as a Southern Belle, a Southern Belle born in New York City. (laughs) But okay. Now, I imagine all this was much easier before the likes of Ancestry.com. So anyway, a lot of puffing up of resumes is happening on both sides of Jackie's family tree. And Janet is trying to work her way, as is her family, into this upper echelon of society. They're just one level below with that new money and they want to work their way up. Janet was actually friends with Jack's twin sisters, and that's how they met, summering in the same place, that up-and-coming Hamptons area. So at 37 years old, Black Jack Bouvier proposed marriage to Janet Lee, who was 21, and I have to tell you, nobody was very happy about that. Jack had a reputation for being a bit of a hide your wives and daughters. Um, No indication that would stop, frankly. And her family's like, are you sure you want to put yourself in this inevitable situation? Putting a ring on it is not going to stop him. Uh, At least we don't think so. And from the Bouvier side, they saw the Lees as, you know, less. Social climbers, buccaneers. Like, how dare you aspire this high? How dare you think you're worthy of our family? It does not sound like a good start already to this relationship. I know, they're off to such a great start. But 500 guests sprawled across a lawn on an East Hampton property, and they danced and drank. And if they were lucky, they could hear Jack and his new father-in-law fighting in the kitchen. (laughs) Now, there's video of the wedding, actually. It's a silent film because it's, you know, 1928. But um, there's video we can link you to, and it doesn't cover the fighting. I'm sorry. (laughs) Really much funner. Um, So anyway... I think she was just marrying to try to get out of the house because that father in question and her mother hadn't spoken in years. I mean, everybody's at the dinner table and the dad would literally say to his children, tell your mother to pass the salt. And the daughter would have to turn to the mother. Father says, please pass the salt. I mean, (laughs) it went on for years. They said they wouldn't get divorced until the daughters were married, but they sure didn't even live together by the time she was about to get married. It was very tense. And that was a very common Escape route for society ladies, I think, but it's kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire. You're really taking a big chance. Mm. I think it was an escape route for a lot of women, regardless of what level of society they were in. But you have a family like that that's setting such a low bar for marital bliss. You know, <laughs> It has to go up, right? I don't think so, because Jack wasn't even across the Atlantic on their honeymoon before he was caught flirting with another woman. <laughs> They hadn't even been married a week yet, and he's already being a tomcat. It's just nefarious, really. So our Jackie was born just a little over a year later. 
And right afterward, the stock market crash of 1929 happened. The big one, Black Tuesday, the beginning of the Depression happened. And that directly and then later indirectly did a number on Blackjack's bank account. Not so much that we have to move off Park Avenue, mind you. Especially since the family lived rent-free in one of Janet's father's buildings. That helps. <laughs> no kidding. He, he actually started off pretty good because he had sent some trouble in the market and he had gotten out to a degree and didn't lose a lot in that first wave. But he was just such a spender and his moves were so risky that he had earned millions and then he lost it over that first year. Yeah, just... we no longer have that delightful unending cushion of cash. No. We were down to three cars, you guys. <laughs> And drivers. In 1929, we were down to three cars. I'm just going to tell you, they're not eating mac and cheese. They didn't even stop their lifestyle. They they cut back not a bit. Not a bit. Well, luckily for little Jackie and her sister, Caroline Lee, when she came along, who everyone just called Lee, Grandpa Bouvier had it all under control. Though they were spending their capital and not their interest now, I've read enough turn-of-the-century literature to know that is a bad sign. That's a problem. I mean... I don't seem to be able to achieve this problem myself. <laughs> Seems like I'm always spending my capital. But um, on the surface, it all looks really great. Uh, Grandpa Bouvier had this giant house in East Hampton called Lasata, which means place of peace. Every summer, everybody descends from everywhere. Cousins and horses and glamorous mamas with clouds of perfume as the parents went out for dinner. Jackie was winning awards with her little pony by the time she was five. And you should see these photos of her at that age. I mean, I put so much on the Pinterest board. What an easy Pinterest board to make, by the way. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But Janet was a horsewoman herself. She was an equestrian, the competitive brand. So, of course, she put her daughter on a horse at two. <laughs> now, my son sat on a pony at two years old, but the people made him wear a helmet and the horse didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> There seemed to be a pretty ramped up sense of sibling rivalry early on. Wouldn't you say that started super early? I read an interview where Lee said that one time Jackie clocked her with a croquet mallet and she was unconscious for two days. <laughs> yes, I would say that. But on the flip side, and I don't have a sister, so I don't know how this works. They were very close for their whole life. They were competitive, but they were also close. They had nicknames in the house, Jacks and Peaks. I keep thinking it didn't help that Black Jack favored, I mean, he really did favor Jackie so obviously. Well, and Jackie physically favored him, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, she looked, and she was the first one. It, it was a nice little family unit. Again, from the outside, it looked really good. But I think it had some good moments, too. So Jackie started at the Chapin School back in New York during the school year. Uh, still there, by the way. It's at 100 East End Avenue. I just looked up tuition. This year is $49,000. If that gives you an idea what kind of school it was and is, um, I don't know who's paying for that. I would guess Grandpa Bouvier, but I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, it has a really um, illustrious list of alumni. I mean, Lily Pulitzer went there, Ivanka Trump. Vera Wang, Sigourney Weaver, a couple Roosevelt, a couple Rockefellers, a couple Vanderbilts, DuPont. You know, it's a good place to go. <laughs> yes. But Jackie was really bright and she was reading The Wizard of Oz and uh, Winnie the Pooh before she even entered kindergarten. 
and Chekhov not that much later. She was reading like short stories of Chekhov. I always wonder when people say that how much they actually understood because I remember reading things and then you would just have this whole buzz over like, I don't know what that meant. Yeah. And you'd read it at, like at the surface level. Like if you read Animal Farm, it's about animals. Right. On a right. Farm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So behind the scenes, Blackjack and Janet were fighting, 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 fighting. Jack was, as predicted, ruthlessly and constantly publicly unfaithful. This isn't even a discreet situation. And Janet herself, probably based on her childhood, had this hair trigger violent temper. And these things do not mix well. And evidently, Janet may well have taken a lot of her anger out on her kids. I'm sorry to say. I know. I did. I read that in one source. I'm like, ah, that's exaggerated. And then I read it in another and I was like, oh, really? Especially Jackie, because, of course, dad favored her. She was a favorite. So she did. I mean, there was some physical, I'm going to call it abuse, although I'm sure at the time she considered it, quote, punishment. I, you know, slapping someone across the face is pretty much never discipline. That's what I'm going to say about that. Oh, I'm going to agree with you wholeheartedly. Well, there was a trial separation when Jackie was about seven, which led to a messy, nasty, in the newspaper level divorce when Jackie was almost 10. So Janet, on the outside, she looked like she was holding it together, but honestly, she was spiraling from the stress of this separation. She was drinking, taking sleeping pills, crying a lot. She was in a real depression. And then some of the evidence that she had gathered about Jack's philandering slipped to the press and it became this huge media thing. There is a picture of Black Jack holding another lady's hand behind the back of Janet. That was in the papers. Mm-hmm. Janet had won an award in a horse show and she's sitting proud with her award and Jack's right behind her holding someone else's hand. Mm-mm-mm. So she grabbed the girls, took them to Nevada and got a quickie divorce. Jack had lost the lion's share of his money by then and he owed his father and Janet's father a lot of money. There was just no mercy anywhere for anyone's privacy. The kids were talking about it at school and they would feel free to make comments to her about it all. Divorce, you know, wasn't that common, but I'm sure it was breakfast table talk all over Manhattan. Poor little Jackie. I know. And Lee. You can't forget Lee. <laughs> Jackie at school kept it all together. Oh, she did. At least on the surface, she was very popular. She was athletic and funny, super quick at lessons, mischievous. Although she's equally possible to be sent to the principal's office for sass mouthing and getting an award for any number of things at school. She is a complicated character. And you know what? I think she keeps that through her entire life. Oh, that's foreshadowing. Yes. But Janet, when it was summertime, you know, time for them to migrate out to the Hamptons, she rented a house that was 40 miles away to make it harder for him to get to the girls. Although he did it. He was kind of their, you know, Disneyland parent. He did not cut back on his spending, even though he didn't really have the money to spend. And he would take them to all the really fun spots, you know, the zoo, the park shopping, ice cream. Being with dad was really exciting. Whereas being with mom, who was a disciplinarian, but she also taught them manners and, you know, things they needed in life. It did always gall her that her daughters preferred their father. And they did, even though legally and technically and morally, he was the bad guy in the divorce. He was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's the fun dad. He even um, maintained a horse for Jackie in Central Park. 
in Mama's defense, she took the on field trips too. Hers were a little more educational. One actually affected Jackie's whole life. They took a trip to the White House, which 11-year-old Jackie felt was completely uninspiring and unwelcoming. Note to self, that brain cell has lodged. It will activate in a few years. Well, Mama married again. I almost think that was inevitable. I don't know in her class in that time that she had a lot of options. She married an extraordinarily wealthy man, a standard oil heir named Hugh D. Auchincloss, who everyone decided to call Hugh D. I do think she married well this time. He seems like a really nice guy. Granted, he was twice divorced with three children of his own, um, but I think the family blended pretty well. Granted, they got off to a little rough start because it was World War II, and Hudi was being called up to do intelligence work. He needed to ship out immediately, so they got married, and then he took off, and then Janet could tell the girls that it happened. She called them on the phone. They didn't even know. Whatever. You have a stepdad and two new brothers and another little sister. Um, two epic mansions to live in. That's good. Jackie's year was spent differently than before. Now she's in Virginia during the year, and she's summering in Newport at the Auchincloss family cottage. And you know what is meant by a Newport cottage. Not a cottage. No. It was a 28-room mansion on 90 acres. Jackie changed schools. Now she's going to the Holton Arms School, super discounted at $42,000 a year. <laughs> um, so the war was on... And really, the main thing that changed for Jackie, obviously, was the stepdad situation. Uh, besides seeing men in uniform and Navy ships going by, I think she was a little insulated from the war, except for the fact that she had to take care of about 2,000 chickens, which is a lot of chickens. Um, I guess their farm was tasked with providing rations for soldiers, and that um, was one of the things they had going. She liked being outside. She was an outdoorsy girl. This house, after stepdad got home, did not seem to be more peaceful than the last one. Later, much later, JFK described it as pure bedlam. There were slamming doors, swearing, chaos. People found Janet both utterly charming and completely terrifying simultaneously. <laughs> Speaking of your complicated women... In Janet's defense, life had been sort of a series of bad relationships from her father on, and I can see why she was an anxious person, I guess, but those people with, like, anger lava constantly bubbling under the surface scare the living crap out of me, and I don't think I could take her. I mean, no one's a complete ogre, don't get me wrong, and I'll recommend a book that kind of fleshes out their complicated relationship, Janet and Jackie. I just want to say these early years, our episode one years, are pretty contentious between mother and daughter. So I'm not sure if this new family was a haven exactly, but Jackie and Lee had six new siblings, ultimately. <laughs> the money was not to be sneezed at, and the connections, the connections. <laughs> These Aachen classes were right here at the top of the social order. If we're playing King of the Mountain, we are, if not at the top, we can touch the king's boots from here. Through a relative of her stepfather, speaking of connections, Jackie was accepted to Miss Porter's School in Farmington, Connecticut. Uh, as of this recording, it has just turned 175 years old. 
And just in the spirit of continuity, I'll tell you what the tuition is for here. It is $58,970. It's actually about 15 miles west of where I am right now. (laughs) It was a finishing school. It polished young ladies for the future as society wives. (laughs) But it also had a focus on academics. And when Jackie went in, that focus was changing. It was becoming more academically based to prepare these girls to go on to school, not just to go on to their MRS degrees. Correct. So Jackie took classes in art, literature, poetry, history, English, and French. She participated in the drama. She even wrote a play. She wrote for the newsletter. And of course, horseback riding because Grandpapa paid for boarding her horse at school. But by the next year, we're talking 16 years old, she was living a more sophisticated life than I ever will. I am in awe. She's off to New York to hob and knob, off to football games at the likes of Yale University, out to society coming out parties far too early as far as everyone else was concerned, which seems to have been resented a little bit. But Jackie kind of didn't care. Her mother didn't care. They saw it as like an apprenticeship year. This isn't the real one. So learn, observe, meet people. Mm -hmm. And we think of Jackie as being one way now. And she was totally different at that age. She was very witty. She had a dirty sense of humor. She took up smoking, which she did keep for the rest of her life. Um, when When Lee called herself fat, Jackie told her to take up smoking because she'd lose weight. There's some good sisterly advice. And I think Lee was like 12 or 11 at the time. I know. And then she became anorexic later on. So not the best advice, I don't think. Jack would come and visit at Miss Porter's. I mean, he was close. He was in New York. He would drive up in his convertible and speed onto campus. He'd bring movie magazines and stockings, and he'd drive his daughter off campus, which she loved. But at this point, he's aging a bit. And instead of this charming playboy image that he had in his head, all of Jackie's friends looked at him like a dirty old man, and they kind of mocked him behind his back. Well, he'd show up at school and brag to his own daughter about conquests among the mothers of her fellow students. And Jackie seems to have thought it was super funny, but I think that is broken. I think that is messed up. Yes. (laughs) Totally. Uh, Maybe it was her mother's idea, this whole goal of marrying a will with a capital M and a W. Fair enough. It's the 1940s and not everyone can buck tradition or even wants to. But what I do not like is Blackjack's dating advice. Play hard to get. That's okay. But don't act smart. It's too intimidating. I don't like that. Play the game. Always make them wait. Change your personality to suit the man you're with. Also, this one, gross. They're the targets. They're your victims. See how many you can get. Gross, right? (laughs) Very gross. He definitely earned that dirty old man image. No question about it. Well, and simultaneously, though, he would warn his daughters that all men just want one thing and remember that no one will ever be good enough for you. It's what are you supposed to take from that? From a man who, you know, who's got a different woman on his arm every time you see him. Hopefully, if you're intelligent, not a lot. (laughs) She graduated from Miss Porter's and was headed to Vassar. And at 17, practice year is over. 
And woo, did she dominate during her own debutante year, the real one. Society columnist Charlie Knickerbocker named her, quote, the queen debutante of the year, 1947. It is almost like putting a crown on her head, literally, like a tiara. Everybody knew who she was, just like if she was a movie star or whatever. And I just do not know how she passed any classes freshman year at college or sophomore year. The energy of youth. I just don't know. Um, One summer, she went on a whirlwind tour of Europe with some friends of her stepfather's that were high enough up that Jackie got to meet Winston Churchill at a party at Buckingham Palace. Like you do. (laughs) I'm just saying these are 17-year-old people and 18-year-old people. And they are living lives like La Vida Loca. I don't even know what is happening. <laughs> well, she was going to Vassar. That's a very difficult school to get into. It's a, you know, now it's co-ed, but then it was an all women's college. So she had to find men somewhere and she loved being around men. She loved flirting. She didn't do that other stuff. I don't believe she did. Do you? Was it a white wedding? I'm not sure about that. But in college, I do think that Jackie went along with society's norms um, that you are to save some elements of yourself for your husband. Mm hmm. That's the impression I got as well. So she was able to spend her junior year abroad in France at the Sorbonne during junior year abroad. Although she did kind of hitch her wagon to Smith College rather than Vassar because they didn't have a program going. And again, her social life is beyond imagination. Right now, close your eyes. Let me give you a montage. Castles, country house weekends. There's a candlelit table that seats 80 and convertibles full of fabulously attractive young people with their hair blowing around. And it would like to kill me from jealousy, frankly. (laughs) She made it into some very respected social circles quite easily. She was a popular guest uh, with what one friend described as a, quote, raunchy sense of humor, which the English upper classes were so (laughs) surprised and delighted by. She developed a technique during these years where she acted or really was interested in everyone else, but didn't answer any questions about herself. Um, She would turn it around and that's actually called being a good listener, but she didn't give a lot away. Which her father probably would have approved of as a strategy at this particular time in her life. Another thing she was doing at the time is she was kind of hiding her intelligence. Again, that was advice from her dad. Mm. But if a boy was complaining that he wasn't doing very well in a class, even if she was getting an A, she'd say, yeah, me too. And that's when she was developing that breathy little girl voice you kind of associate with her later on in her life. It was not the voice that she went into college with but it's the one she had when she left. Yeah, she was kind of notorious for a loud voice and uh, open-mouthed laughter, throwing back her head and uh, grand gestures and poking people and playing practical jokes and this and that. And gradually she shaved all that off, sanded it off maybe, and at least on the outside put this very refined cloak of respectability all over herself. I have to tell you, I especially during this point, she had put off coming home and her papa like started pacing the room back home. He was very stressed out about it. They had such an odd relationship. He he was almost like obsessed with her. Are you getting that too? Yes. Yeah. Li- kind of living through her life a little bit. He was more interested in her appearance and her social life than the average dad, almost like she was his horse in some kind of life race. I'm reminded of this one thing where she got a haircut and he freaked out and left work and rushed home to make sure she hadn't ruined her head. 
I don't know. Seems weird. (laughs) Well, for her senior year of college, Jackie decided not to go back to what she called, excuse my French, that Vassar, but she was going to finish up at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. She majored in French literature. Uh, She took courses in journalism and creative writing. And one of her professors had said that, quote, she had a genuine talent for the craft of writing. She had a gift as a writer. She didn't need to take my class. That's how well she was writing. Impressive. I think that is great. Well, based on native talent, I believe that her mother recognized her mother had encouraged her to try for this. I mean, it was a long shot. This Prix de Paris uh, Vogue had a challenge. You could apply, send in what was this giant dossier full of um, ideas and packets and about yourself and about fashion. And what would you do with the magazine? It was, I mean, it was no joke to fill out all of the paperwork. Um, And the winner of this contest would get to work in the New York offices of Vogue for six months and then go to Paris to work at Vogue Paris for the rest of the year. It was a giant big deal. Just as a little taste of what was here, I just want to read to you how she described herself physically. As to physical appearance, I am tall, 5'7", with brown hair, a square face, and eyes that are so unfortunately far apart that it takes three weeks to have a pair of glasses made wide enough to fit over my nose. I do not have a sensational figure, but I can look slim if I pick the right clothes. I flatter myself on being able, at times, to walk out of the house looking like a poor man's copy of Paris. (laughs) Okay. She said this is one of her ideal outfits. A sleeveless plaid dress teamed with a black turtleneck blouse could cope with Sunday afternoons at college, followed by dinner in town and Sunday lunch at his family's house in the country. So after graduating and yet another summer in Europe where an entire section of a bullfight came to blows to defend her honor when someone got her shirt wet and she was a little bit exposed. Yes. Uh, Where she met the prime minister, like you do. Here Jackie comes for her first day at Vogue magazine. She is like an aspirational movie. (laughs) Her photo had already run in Vogue, announcing her as the winner of the contest. And so she reported for that first day of work in New York, ready to go. And by the end of the day, she had quit. (laughs) So here she is at a desk in the office of Bettina Ballard, who we have talked about before. During the Coco Chanel episode, the woman who ushered in Chanel's comeback in America after that disastrous fashion show. The one that took the three outfits from Coco Chanel's failed, I put that in quotes, collection and featured them in American Vogue. That's still two years in the future, but this is the lady. This is the brain we're sitting in on. You know, this is not small potatoes. This is the ultimate fast pass to greatness. There's a couple different stories as to why she left, because this is very confusing. Why would you spend all that energy and time putting together this dossier, this huge book of an application only to quit on your first day? Here's one story about what happened. And I'm picturing Devil Wears Prada on this one. A gay male employee came in and uh, enthused too campily about some green velvet fabric. And she might have realized she'd never meet a husband here and left. What? I know that doesn't even sound right. When she graduated from high school, she said the one thing she didn't want to be was a housewife. So is she really looking for a man at this point? That seems crazy. A more logical one to me is that Janet didn't really want Jackie to leave. 
even though she had encouraged her to apply in the first place, leaving meant that Jackie was going to go to Paris. And if Jackie went to Paris, she might stay there as an expat for who knows how long. And Janet wasn't ready to give her up. So she told the personnel office, regardless of the reason, my mother would rather I stay in the home. She thinks this is not the proper path for me. Well, I don't know. I, she worked there from three to five hours. <laughs> uh, no word on who the second place finisher was. I hope she was excited to get that phone call. <laughs> I just don't know. But all I can say is Jackie, Jackie, Jackie. <laughs> this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what happens to Jackie now that she's left Vogue. Now what? Now that we've left Vogue magazine so abruptly after our grueling three-hour shift, what are we going to (laughs) do? Jackie still thought that she had a future as a writer of some sort, but she had no place to go except back home. So she moved back to Washington, back to Marywood with her mom and her stepdad, and got a secretarial job with the Washington Times-Herald. That's not a paper anymore. Uh, It later merged with the Washington Post, so its spirit is still alive. But she worked her way up from secretary to a more meatier job as an inquiring photographer, and she got her own column. The format of this feature was that you'd go out into the street or out to an office with a question of the day and a camera, and you would make an article out of your results. My favorite question that she ever asked was, when did you discover that women were not the weaker sex? It's like a grenade. (laughs) I know, really. But she sometimes directed her questions towards the kind of person that she was talking to. Like if she was talking to some construction workers, she might ask about boxing. But as she started to realize that she wasn't married and it became something more on her mind, she started asking questions about that. Are wives a necessity or a luxury? She really did take it seriously. So this is the kind of job that you could go either way with this. It was it was one as an editor that you'd give to your upper class friends, pretty daughters before they got married kind of thing, end of qualifications. But she made something out of it. Evidently here, as everywhere else, she made an impression. At a dinner party, she met a young, single congressman named Jack Kennedy. But, and I love this story, there was a little magnetismo. You know, like, oh, well, let me walk you out, et cetera, you know. But Jackie had this Mustang, this old 
raggedy Mustang, sort of a famous calling card around town of hers, and it had been parked outside all evening. So here's Jack and Jackie, and they get to the car still murmuring about, oh, you know, so attractive, blah, blah, blah. And then like, hey, presto, an old boyfriend (laughs) had been passing by and had seen the Mustang and had hidden in the backseat and jumped out to surprise her. (laughs) It's like, oh, awkward, never mind. And... My friends, they went their separate ways, Jack and Jackie. (laughs) But Jackie's friends and her mother kind of made it their pet project to find a spouse for Jackie. They were inviting her to dinners and introducing her to men. And a man that she met this way, she began to seriously date. He was an investment banker. He was handsome. He was a Yaley. And his name was John Husted Jr., The two dated for a while and then became engaged about Christmas time. Jackie was 22, so she brought him to visit her family at Marywood. And at the end of the evening, she walked him to the train and gave him the ring back and ended the relationship. (laughs) Well, her mother, this is one element, did not think she'd aimed high enough because... Jackie was not in love. There's not even that excuse. What even was this then? If you're going to marry for money, you have to aim higher than whatever this is. And so she broke it off and broke his heart. He recovered. He got married. He's fine. But maybe in unrelated news, old Congressman Kennedy was back in her life. Those friends of hers kept making situations for them to be at the same place at the same time, at a party in Palm Springs, at a dinner. They were obviously attracted to each other, but Jack was attracted to a lot of women. Now, what can we say about John Fitzgerald Kennedy that you don't already know? Here is a very quick biography. He was the second of the eight children of Joe and Rose Kennedy. And Joe Kennedy was a rich man, new rich, if that's important to you. And he had blown his own chances for a political career during World War II. So he now transferred all his ambitions to his sons. When the oldest brother died in the war, Jack, the second born, seemed like the next natural heir to the ambition. He was good looking. He was charming. He'd served honorably in the war. What's not to like? Although he was horribly ill his whole life, which I was not sure that I knew. He had Addison's disease. He had skeletal problems from birth. He had a healthy series of venereal diseases, which we could have predicted. (laughs) Um, These things were swept under the rug. So by the time he comes into our story, he was 35. He was a member of the United States House of Representatives from Massachusetts, and he's well on his way to stardom. They dated... Not exclusively, so you should get used to that, Jackie, for about a year, and he was running for Senate at the time. Busy, 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 busy. She did go with him to President Eisenhower's inaugural ball, though, so it's obvious that she was respectable enough to appear in that sort of society, and they kept dating after he won his Senate seat. And get this, she helped him with his first big speech by translating this whole shelf full of research materials for him from French to English. So, Mr. Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, it is not every girlfriend in the 1950s that can help you tell the world about the political situation in Southeast Asia. I'm just saying. (laughs) No, it's not. And there was another Mr. Kennedy that realized this as well, and that was... 
you know, King Joe. And he saw Jackie as the perfect partner for Jack. She had everything that a aspiring political hero would want in a bride, except Jack didn't want to get married. Yeah, sometimes doing this show, I reach a point in my research where my illusions are just shattered. Almost like, my, I wish I had stopped just before this chapter. Um, and this is the point, <laughs> I believe, I reached here. Jack Kennedy was pretty uninterested in getting married. I, you know, he's such a man about town. Why tie an anchor on all this fabulousness? And he wasn't in love with anyone. So why shouldn't he go on business as usual? Well, I'll tell you why, because his father told him it was time. And I wonder if any of you ever watched Sex in the City, where they talked about men being cruising taxis, and just one day they turn their light on and the very next woman they date becomes Mrs. Taxi. I'm not sure if I believe that exactly in real life, but in this case, Daddy Joe Kennedy reached in the window and turned his son's taxi light on. You need a wife to advance, my friend, an accessory. You need a prop for PR purposes. You need a couple of children. A single man is going to hit a wall, dude, so chop, chop. That Jackie Bouvier you've been bringing around, that's perfect. She knows all these important people. She was Deb of the Year. She knows how to dress. She's a lady. I mean, your choice, whatever, but it's time. You're 35. And all the Kennedys obeyed their father as if he were a king. Not every woman could survive in the Kennedy family. This was a extremely competitive, very tight, very loud, big family. Uh, Jackie had described them like this, quote, they were like carbonated water and other families might be flat. <laughs> she went on another time to say, if you don't get on the offensive, you'd be on the defensive all night. So she could run with the Kennedys. A lot of other women would be chopped up and spit out in no time, especially by those women, the sisters and the sister-in-law, Ethel, they called her the Deb. They made fun of her behind her back, but she held her own in this family. I have to tell you, I would be hiding under the stairs alternately. You would see me with cartoon roadrunner feet like whoop, 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 on my road getting out of there because, <laughs> you know, I'm not signing up for that. Well, <laughs> if anything... Jackie may have loved Jack or the idea of Jack. I don't know. I The feeling was not mutual. <sighs> I was thinking of crying real tears in an idle sort of way right here, but like I'm a realist, whatever. Mm. <laughs> On Jackie's part, I'm sorry to say, I think just from my perspective, the main objective seems to be money. She'd always been stressed out about money, which here from the cheap seats seems mighty ridiculous. <laughs> but I guess in the waters she swam in, she was always the poor relation. You know, her father had lost most of his money. She was always panic stricken. She said that her tuition would come up unpaid and she'd get hauled out of school. And after Janet married Mr. Auchincloss, she and her sister Lee were the only two of all those children who didn't have trust funds. They're not blood relations, you know. It seems like the small violin to me, honestly, because she had been showered in luxury since birth. You know, and no one ever begrudged her or Lee any material thing on earth. They weren't even made to feel bad about anything. That's the <laughs> thing. But I guess there was some deep desire to be... I guess, entitled officially to her own money. It's kind of spoiled, I'm sorry to say. And there seemed to be also some personal pressure. She wanted to get out from under the stressful, volatile Auchincloss house. I want to read that as her mother's house. <laughs> and also, 
her younger sister had just gotten married. And I believe she felt some pressure to get down the aisle, any old aisle, which is not the searing love story that I expected. No, I agree with you. She, I think she was monetarily motivated, but Jack and her shared a lot of things. They had some common ground. They both enjoyed reading. They enjoyed reading poetry. They loved history. On their dates, they'd play board games and hang out with their friends. It They were very normal together. And I think a lot of women in this era and in this social sphere would get married for just the money. But I think Jackie had a little bit more because of that common ground that they had. Maybe a little intellectual capabilities that matched each other. Exactly. Exactly. Well, she had broken off an engagement because she didn't have that thing, whatever it was. And she had it with Jack. So he did ask her to marry him. And she took the only piece of blackjack dating advice that I approve of and played a little hard to get. There was a very timely invitation (laughs) to go see the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II where she stayed at the house of one of Queen Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting, you guys. (laughs) I'm just like, she should have hung around this place and found a nice earl to marry and become Countess What's-Her-Name. But anyway, her notes on these couple of weeks of parties for the coronation were the very last journalism that she ever did as Jacqueline Bouvier. And all of her friends in Europe told her to tell Jack Kennedy no. Like, who even were these Kennedys? Oh, I know the father. He'd been here before. He was the ambassador to the United Kingdom in the 1930s and had known Queen Elizabeth II's dad. I mean, he was in the social register for that very reason, that he was the ambassador. But he had sort of advocated caving to Hitler, even being heard to say that England would be the very first place to beg Hitler for peace. That is not good. Another not good thing, Ambassador Joe Kennedy went to hide in his country house during the Blitz. It was a show of cowardice, and it got him a very bad reputation. Many people had a very bad taste in their mouth about him. And also, anyway, father and son both sleep with anything that moves Jackie, even each other's conquests. Listen to me. But she's like, teehee, I'm just marrying a man like my father. (laughs) Speaking of giving in to the Nazis, when she went to England, she was on the same boat as the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. (laughs) They were not going to the coronation as they were not invited, um, but back home to Paris. (laughs) You know, she's traveling in Good circles, I guess. She does meet up with quite a few other uh, other subjects, doesn't she? We've already had Coco Chanel, and now we've had the Duchess of Windsor and Queen Elizabeth, so hooray. I could throw in another one. On her trip back, she sat next to Zsa Zsa Gabor, who later said that Jackie had kinky hair and bad skin. We have not covered Zsa Zsa Gabor yet. <laughs> oh, Zsa Zsa Gabor. I know. Kinky hair, though. That's a surprise. I know. I guess I didn't even realize her hair was even remotely curly. I just thought it was, um, you know, interfered with. Interesting. (laughs) Well, anyway, um, yeah, Jack Kennedy's a whole other scale of womanizing. He views the world like target practice. And he doesn't love you the way your father does. And you were not your father's wife. So I don't know what kind of optimism that was. Well, the engagement was announced right after a major newspaper feature had come out calling Jack, quote, the most eligible bachelor in the country. So with perfect PR timing, because I'm a cynic now, 
<laughs> As you should be. Uh, so that's when the engagement was announced. And Jackie and Jack were both described as depressed and full of dread, respectively. <laughs> well, you know, Joe himself, who was probably behind the press release that talked about Jack being this great bachelor, um, he was involved with purchasing the engagement ring. Jack didn't even pick it out. I'm not entirely sure that Joe picked it out. I think he phoned ahead and had the store just like pull a bunch of stuff you think I might like and I'll come approve it and pay for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wonder if the first time Jack saw it was when he opened the box to give it to her. <laughs> Like every Christmas present from mom and dad, where dad has no idea what's in the box. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, from the very moment that he heard his Jackie was getting married, Black Jack immediately, immediately started shaping up. You know, he'd gotten a little rough with the drinking and he'd sort of let himself go physically and psychologically, but he got himself slapped together for his favorite daughter. He stopped drinking, full stop. He went on a diet. He started jogging around Central Park in this horrible rubber onesie. I hope he wore it under some clothes. <laughs> I was thinking it's more like a rubber, like a hazmat suit. So it's not like tight fitting, like a, you know, a wetsuit. Wouldn't it's he a look more like a monster? <laughs> well, he was sweating, I guess. Maybe he just smelled like a monster. Oh, yeah. Well, at the end of all this, after a shower, I'm assuming in some detox, he looked great. He was excited. This was going to be the biggest freaking day of his life. But Janet sent word that he wasn't invited to the reception. And you know what? You're also not invited to the dinner the night before. You can show up at church because any fool off the street can show up in church. You can walk Jackie down the aisle and then you have to get out. Like, why? I think Jan, well, first off, the Auchincloss's were uh, helping to foot the bill for this wedding. They were hosting it at their Newport cottage. Um, so that's part of it. And I think the other part is, is that she got caught up in the Joe Kennedy machine. Joe Kennedy took control of that wedding planning. You know, he got his public relations department on it, sent out press releases that said it was going to be, quote, one of the most important and colorful weddings ever held in America. So I think mm -hmm. Janet was thrilled by being a part of something so big and such a celebrity event that she didn't want anything from her husband around, you know, her first husband. I don't know. I feel sad. I mean, they had danced together so nicely at Lee's wedding, but you're right. Lee's wedding was no media spectacle. And this was, I mean, even when Jack and Jackie went to get their marriage license, the press was waiting for them. The public couldn't get enough of this story. Thanks to well-placed press releases, I'm sure. But <laughs> they were waiting. It's a big deal. Well, poor old Black Jack. And this is his fault. Nobody made him do it. He's a grown man. But he went to the bar and he got so drunk that, in fact, her stepfather, Mr. Auchincloss, walked her down the aisle. And everyone was talking about it all day. Shades of everyone talking about the divorce when little Jackie was 10 and all the mean girls used to get after her. Poor Jackie had to hold it together all day. And I'm sure that she did not get the real story until later. And that must have hurt her very much. But you look at any of those pictures and she looks like a glowing bride. She is a very good actor because I do believe she was heartbroken that her dad wasn't there. But she, you know, she went through with everything like the star of the day, which she was, even if she didn't get a say on very much of it. Like even her dress that was designed by committee. 
Jack wanted her in something traditional and old-fashioned, and her mom and Joe wanted something frilly. And Joe loved the optics of the dress being designed and made by an African-American designer. So she didn't have any say in very much of this wedding, but yet she appears so happy. What an actress. There's a lovely picture I'll put on the Pinterest where there's, um, I even lost count, 12, 14 groomsmen. That is just crazy. But we'll give you an idea of the scale. There were 1,400 people plus at the reception, some of which were political rivals and no one liked at all. There were movie (laughs) stars there also and a lot of press. So it's kind of like a bunch of strangers at your wedding, including your husband. (laughs) Who's kind of a stranger. Well, I mean, immediately everything was sort of tense, right? Um, The exuberant Kennedys were baffling to Jackie, all that competitiveness, win, win, win. And the sisters and sisters-in-law thought she was sort of lati-dati, like always gentle into painting and classical music and She absolutely did not get into this family joking. They liked nothing more than to put people down and have a roast of someone at the dinner table. And Jackie is just not playing that game. And speaking of games, the only time she ever tried to play touch football with these people, she ended up on crutches. So bag this. (laughs) (laughs) But um, Jack's father liked her a lot. I mean, not in that way, at least not successfully. He had patted Samaritans on the behind before. Oh, that's a very kind way to put it. He had been a womanizer for his whole life. He lived in the gray areas. He wasn't above anything to make money, get women, um, whatever he wanted to accomplish, he would do it. It didn't didn't matter. So yeah, petting women on the behind was very polite. (laughs) That was actually one of the reasons he told Jack to get married. He said, look, you might not know this, but your mom and I, we have an arrangement. I can have my women and she gets all this money and all this stuff. So she turns her head. The same thing can happen to you. I'm sure Jackie will be agreeable to it. Honestly, I think if you read any biography of Rose Kennedy, she was not okay with it. She was unhappy her whole life about that, quote, arrangement. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad it seems so sunny from his side. That makes me, I want to punch his face. (laughs) Several times. Well, Jackie did a lot to get closer to her husband, even to the point of heading to Georgetown University, where she took some history and political science classes so she could participate intelligently in his world and at the dinner table. But his political activities, etc., activities kept him away from home for most of Jackie's waking hours. It wasn't conducive to a lot of closeness until... Unfortunately, I guess, Jack had a spinal operation, which was followed by serious, near-fatal complications. She really, really stepped up. She stayed with him in the hospital. She read to him to the point of exhaustion. She gave a show of devotion that really impressed everyone. And it was during this period that she encouraged him and supported him as he put together notes for a book called Profiles in Courage, for which he later won the Pulitzer Prize, by the way. But the whole time, you know how sick people sometimes are. He gave her dog's abuse. He was not nice to her and he mocked her in front of everyone. And yet she stood by him. Well, I have to say, you know, he was better than her dad in one regard. He waited a whole two weeks before he went back to some women after the wedding. (laughs) Dad didn't even get across the ocean, but, you know, Jack made it a couple weeks. So, you know, she should stick by him, right? That is sarcasm, people. (laughs) 
So less than two years after their wedding, these two Kennedys were in different countries. Jackie in France telling everyone who would listen that she was never going back to her husband. Jack in Sweden having a thing with an old flame. But Joe Kennedy wouldn't have it. If you are ever going to be president, you can't have a divorce in your past. And several books I read put forth the theory that King Joe Kennedy sweetened the deal by giving Jackie a significant amount of money in her own name. I buy it. I mean, (laughs) pun intended. Well, true or not true, I don't know. But there was a weird pivot here where the public face of the young Kennedy marriage was all fixed now. Nothing to see here. La, 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 la. (laughs) And they all got on the same page, you know, Joe made sure they did. It's like, we have this mission, we're going to do it. And Joe Kennedy doesn't lose missions. You know, he makes it happen. What is that by hook or by crook? And he was a crook. So there you go. (laughs) Exactly. Well, Jackie had had an early miscarriage, but was soon pregnant again. And she accompanied Jack to the Democratic National Convention where he was raising his profile. People were starting to take notice of him and her role as political wife was very demanding, but she charmed everyone she came across and really supported him. Now, he lost his bid for the vice presidential nomination, but that was okay. We didn't even see that as a loss because the vice presidential role was often seen as a dead end politically. So you didn't necessarily want it. But the thing is, his name and his face were now in everyone's mind. And that was a perfect outcome. And after all that hard work was over, Jack took off for a scheduled guys trip on a French riverboat tour and Jackie stayed behind. She was seven months pregnant. So it wasn't a a bitterness. It wasn't a we're on the outs or anything. It was just a, you know, separate vacation. And that was fine. Yeah. And she hung out until she was about eight months pregnant when one day she started to hemorrhage. She was rushed to the emergency room, had an emergency C-section and delivered a stillborn daughter that they had already named Arabella. Now, the story is, I just want to add as an aside, as a footnote that they had a ship to shore radio. (laughs) But the story goes that no one could reach Jack for a few days until they came into port. And when they did... And this is what changed my mind about JFK, kids. He said, oh, I suppose that's the end of our trip then. He wasn't even going to go home until a friend said, boy, if you ever hope to be president, you better get your home to your wife. So he did. (laughs) But their relationship really wasn't on solid ground. Jackie had been rehabbing a house with plans to raise their family there. And she just couldn't even go into this house anymore. So she sold it to Bobby and Ethel for their ever growing family. I mean, they had five then and 11 kids. (laughs) Bobby and Ethel were very good at making babies and they lived there, you know, for a very long time. But it was originally Jack and Jackie's house, their first house together. And she couldn't live there. Well, when Jackie was 28, the best thing and the worst thing happened. Poor old broken Black Jack died of liver cancer, the man who loved her the most in the whole entire world. But four months later, her daughter Caroline was born, which was a day that Jackie said was the happiest day of her entire life. 
And what Jackie probably didn't know at the time is that Jack had more than likely given her chlamydia somewhere along the way. And that's why she was having trouble keeping these pregnancies and bringing them to term. So Caroline's birth was even more of a miracle that Jackie just didn't even know. I am not sure if we talked about this during the Catherine of Aragon and the Anne Boleyn podcast episodes, but I believe there is a theory that that is what caused all those miscarriages among those poor women who took the blame for the whole thing, but in fact may have been Henry VIII's fault in the first place. That's not good. No. So after Caroline was born, there was sort of a tipping point, and I am going to call this the remodeling years. The outside of their marriage got a new coat of paint. Jack and Jackie both upgraded their physical appearances, which I think was down to Jackie to change him. Um, she had actually written about this, ironically, way back in that Vogue dossier for the contest. She had proposed an article about men's clothes to be featured in the women's fashion magazine Vogue because... Women often wanted to change their husband's appearance and wouldn't it be a service to provide them with the information to do it. Evidently, Jack had worn brown shoes somewhere, which offended the crap out of everyone and was a giant big deal. So anyway, that all got fixed up. Um, didn't know that was such a big deal. Brown shoes. But <laughs> evidently it was. Um, their house became grander, became a stage. And Jackie was determined to get over some things like shyness and snobbiness, or pretend she did, to act like the political wife that King Joe Kennedy had thought she'd be, an asset to the company called Kennedy. Why was this? Because Jack Kennedy had decided, no, because Joe Kennedy <laughs> had decided that Jack Kennedy was going to make a run for president of the United States. He was going to bypass years of working his way up the ranks of the Democratic Party, of paying his dues, you know what, kid? We're just going to aim high. We're going to go for it. It's a new era. It's a new day. And your new blood. And the end. We're not going to waste any more time. Well, yeah. And he did get the nomination. Um, Jackie helped with his campaign. She answered mail. She helped him with research and speech writing. She was fluent in French. We've already talked about that. But she was also fluent in Spanish and Italian. And it seemed like every ethnic group that they spoke to, she could say something in their native language. Just a little greeting if she didn't have, you know, the fluency of it. And people loved this about her. She was such an asset on the campaign trail. You're right. It was noted that any event in which Jackie participated had some kind of buzz, like a different vibe about it. She spoke French to a crowd in New Orleans and about broke the minds of the whole planet. <laughs> Jackie Kennedy, to me, seems like a fundamentally lonely person. I have thought this about her whole entire life. She had one or two relatively close friends in high school and college, but everyone else was at arm's length. All these other friends, all these other acquaintances seem like they're only getting the surface and sort of this carefully constructed surface, almost like a pre-internet blogger. I mean, you know, I will curate my life and I will show you only the good parts. Like when press would come to the house to take um, photos of them and do features on them, family life, you know, nannies were whisked out of sight, housekeepers were cut out of the story. I hate that when people like, oh, I can do it all. It's just a matter of managing time, you know, being very organized, whatever. Mm. <laughs> well, and from this point, Jackie became for the world, for American women, the style icon, the 
aspirational, exotic, sophisticated American princess type. She became a type. No, she became a brand, you know, and likening it to an internet blogger is such a, a great analogy because Jackie created the brand and she held it, held it tight and anything that was put out in public had to be part of that brand. It had to line up. If it didn't, it didn't go out. She was very good at it. I think she was uniquely qualified for that, given her upbringing and the kind of person she was. You know, even what you just said about her not having a lot of friends, that helped her in this particular situation because there wasn't a lot of people that could tell the true story. There, as a side note, is a blogger named Mimi Thorison who writes cookbooks and writes a blog called Manger, and she lives in a chateau in France with her seven kids, and she seems to be living my best life. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of. So I get it. I get it. You're like, oh, I want to have picnics in the Chateau Garden on a big wooden table with all the Irish wolfhounds and an aga. And, uh, you know, it's just like I can get it. Why all of America would think, oh, my God, look at this. Hey, can you go back a little bit? What's an aga? Oh, an aga is this brand of stove that's associated with, I mean, I apologize if you have one, listeners, but it's kind of hoity-toity. <laughs> I guess it's kind of a mark of like, oh, look, regard what is in the kitchen. It's a, a lot of trouble and you can't turn them off and they often provide heat for your chateau or your old rectory or some kind of other uninsulated dwelling. It's just a, a symbol of um, arrival, I do believe. Aha. The more you know. <laughs> in this case, we'd have to reinforce the floor because I think they're cast iron and I think they weigh a heck of a lot. So you probably need a stone floor to have an aga. But um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so you, you just got to go move into uh, Mimi's chateau. No big. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I have to confess here that there were a whole bunch of times during this research that I just wanted to hug Jackie, which of course she would have hated <laughs> and would never have invited me back into her life. But I do not think that John Fitzgerald Kennedy was the right match for her at all. She was so quick and she was so witty and funny and there was such potential. I mean, she did end up being great. Don't get me wrong, but there was such potential for happiness, happy greatness. I don't know what the word is, but everyone seemed to try to put all that back in a little box. And I think probably that happened to a lot of women in the 1950s. So maybe she was the icon of her time, you know? Yeah. And simultaneously, um, with my research for this show, I am listening to the audiobook of Shonda Rhimes, the producer, writer of Scandal, of Grey's Anatomy, etc. Um, her book called Year of Yes, which I highly recommend listening to. It's read by Shonda Rhimes herself. But there's a quote that struck me that sounded a lot like Mrs. Kennedy. I don't think it ever occurred to me before how much and how often women are praised for displaying traits that basically render them invisible. When I really think about it, I realize the culprit is the language we generally use to praise women. Whoa. And that's from the modern day, and we've not advanced any further. Help meetness. Okay. Wow. Well, ironically, here, during the run-up to the primary election and the 1960 presidential election, that whole year, nearly, Jackie was pregnant. <laughs> and so, sort of could not be fully deployed the way Joe Kennedy wanted, which was probably fine with her, actually. <laughs> But she did plenty behind the scenes after she, I wouldn't say she's confined to her house, but following doctor's advice after her difficult pregnancies, she was told to lay off and um, take it easy. She still could help the campaign. She wrote a syndicated newspaper column called 
campaign wife. There were six columns, but a lot of eyes were on them where she talked about being a political and a campaign wife. She made herself very relatable, very real to the readers, and that helped Jack's campaign quite a bit. She also allowed interviews at the House. So she could do some things. She just couldn't be out in front of the people on the campaign trail. But giving people a secret backstage pass is often very exciting. So it was a very smart psychological thing for her to do. Oh, yeah. Even if it was just accidental, which I can't imagine it is, that was just like, oh, you're so smart. Not only are you an aspirational style icon, but you're going to let us all in on your secrets. It's Twitter. Yes. It's Twitter. You know, we have this um, connection with these people that we idolize, these celebrities that we'd never talk to because they give us, you know, insights into their life with their cat pictures and (laughs) their political rants. Same thing. So at the advice of some savvy, politically minded women, Jackie began buying American-made clothes because the Republicans were starting to make noises that she was sort of this Marie Antoinette figure, this frivolous spender, this consumer of European luxury goods. And just like they said with the Kennedys, if you're not playing offense, you're going to be forced to play defense. So they got out ahead of it. Specifically, an unknown designer named Oleg Cassini. If you get in the Wayback Machine and you go back to the man, Charlie Knickerbocker, who had named her Queen Debutante of 1947, this is actually just his brother. So obviously his name is not Charlie Knickerbocker. Um, So it was a deal. Oleg Cassini, I'm going to make you into a household name. In return, you are going to make sure that all my clothes are made in America. (laughs) Even if the design is French, you're going to make sure they're... uh, overtly American. (laughs) Even if the design is French, even if the trim comes from Chanel in France, they have to be made in America. So you can do that, right? I'm like, sure, sure he can. Also, her pillbox hats. Jackie hated to wear hats. And she felt like, I need the smallest hat I can get away with. (laughs) That pillbox hat was created by a then unknown milliner named Halston, and she liked it because she could forget it was there. Apparently, the size and the shape of it was good for her big hair and her big head. (laughs) Her big head. I know, but it was it was an amazing style. It, she didn't have to fuss with it; just tack it on and go. And people loved it. I mean, she became a style icon for sure. And she sent those designers into the stratosphere. So, one personal preference, or I guess in this case, non-preference, kind of changed the fashion world forever. And I'm just thinking of Kate Middleton and Friends and those fascinators. <laughs> I mean, that's even a littler hat than a pillbox hat. Maybe it was just too radical. But yeah. you know, remember how everybody out always had fascinators for a while after the whole Kate Middleton thing? Uh-huh. Yeah. It's the same thing. Jackie would have loved those. So back to politics. We have all seen the footage of the Nixon-Kennedy debates, I hope. Old photogenic Kennedy, comfortable in front of a camera. He's young. He's tan. He's handsome. Versus... In the other corner, awkward, sweaty Nixon. (laughs) Oh, my. Well, the Kennedys were made for the TV age. Not fair, perhaps, to the Nixons, but there it is. But if it's any consolation, 
it's not. They've had more trouble since. But <laughs> um, if it's any consolation to the Nixons, I think a Kennedy presidency would never have happened during the Internet age. There's too much information about his poor health and all of his philandering. I mean, everyone knew her family, his family, their friends, the FBI, the Democratic Party, all of Hollywood, all of Washington, D.C. I mean, the only people in the dark were the general public. They didn't know that Jack Kennedy when he wasn't on stage or in view, walked around with crutches. Sometimes he was in a wheelchair. He was in so much pain. But he always presented himself, just like at this televised debate, as this image of vitality and health and young energy, you know, but the truth, yeah, in the internet age, they never would have got away with that. That's for sure. Yeah. So for TV, in an era where people are willing to sweep things under the rug, JFK is your man. <laughs> so he won the election and the results seem like a slam dunk. 303 uh, electoral votes to 219. But when you examine the popular vote, this is the closest popular vote there has ever been. Two-tenths of one percentage point. That is close. And Jack and Jackie only knew for sure the next day. No one could even call it. Until the Secret Service came to surround the house, they had no idea he was the president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack, at 43, became the youngest president ever elected. Although Teddy Roosevelt kind of snuck in as a vice president. So on a technicality, Kennedy's the youngest. Although... Francis Cleveland scooped Jackie on youngest first lady because Francis Cleveland was only 21 when she became first lady. So she had Jackie beat by 10 years. And now we're on the verge of the presidency and some other things, too. So now it's time to take a little break. And when we come back, let us see how our reign begins. And we're back. Now, right on the heels of the election and a whole month early, which seems to be a pattern, Jackie gave birth to John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr. and was still suffering two weeks later from exhaustion and postpartum depression when she was invited to the White House, which would be her new home, by the current First Lady. <laughs> I'm so mad at Mamie Eisenhower for this. I can't even stand it. So Jackie had had a C-section. She was in the hospital recuperating. And the command invitation was the day that Jackie got out of the hospital. So she went from the hospital to tour the White House. She was told that there was going to be a wheelchair available for her. And there wasn't because Mamie had said, keep it in the closet unless she asks for it. So Jackie didn't ask for it 
put on a smiley face and in so much pain took that two hour tour with this huge smile. I can't, you look at the pictures, you're like, she doesn't look like she's in pain, but you had a C-section, you know. Well, I was kicked out of the hospital after three days. I don't know that we pamper people after a C-section the way we used to, but I'm not, I'm not discounting the fact that she was in pain. She Mm -hmm. was, and she was also almost more importantly, suffering from postpartum depression, which never during this time period got the respect that it really needs. No, it it hasn't until very recently, I would say. It's a serious issue. And it, you know, the baby blues, they just brushed it under the rug. Oh, you'll get over it. Mm -mm. She had a full on postpartum depression here. So a short four weeks later, she stood on the reviewing stand in her fabulous powder blue suit to watch her husband become the 35th president of the United States. Now, characteristically, JFK stayed out and about and hit every possible party and inaugural ball he could get his hands on. And Jackie retired, exhausted, to bed in the White House. I think she made it to two inaugural balls, but couldn't push further. I believe she only made those two balls um, because of a doctor-administered dose of dexedrine. That seems to be a pattern to throw pharmaceuticals at a situation. So we'll hear more about that in just a few minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you're the president, you're probably thrown into the deep end of some extraordinarily serious business. But the job of first lady, though... Each woman that has it sort of has to construct her role from scratch and face all the criticism for doing so. Now, as far as I know, there's no manual. I could be wrong. I'm not a first lady. (laughs) Uh, Franklin Pierce's wife, Jane, chose to sit for years and let somebody else deal with it because she wasn't going to. (sighs) Well, that's not what Jackie did. Uh, So Jane Pierce had one way to go. But what was Jackie going to focus on during her time in the White House? Well, the very first thing she did was lock down press access to the family side of things. They were her little children. They were not sideshow attractions. And she was very adamant about limiting the circus that surrounded them. And so to that effect, she established this preschool slash kindergarten upstairs on the third floor, like a certified, like a real school with certified teachers and everything with about 25 kids in it. A regular old school. I mean, there's a class pet for a while that inevitably died, just like every class pet. (laughs) Um, A dress up area, nap time, you know, snacks the parents had to bring in. I love this so much. And she kept Mm -hmm. it mostly under wraps like it's nobody's business. If there was a particularly noteworthy visitor to the White House, though, all the little kids might traipse down to see them arrive, or alternately, he or she, if willing, might have been hauled up to the third floor to speak to the children, which is just like, oh my God. That's amazing. Well, she wanted to keep the kids' lives as normal as possible, and Caroline had been part of a playgroup. That was the core group of people that started this nursery, instead of meeting from house to house, was now going to meet at the White House. That's just the kind of, that's how she worked. You know, nothing was slow. (laughs) She had this idea. It's going to morph itself into its culmination as fast as possible. And I want to add that quietly, with no fanfare, this kindergarten had been integrated from the very beginning. You know, I'm sorry to say it was only one little boy, Trailblazer, the son of the assistant press secretary, um, who was African-American, but it was a beginning two years ahead of anything her husband would do in the name of civil rights. So from here, it seems absolutely laughable that this would have been considered a shocking act, Mm -hmm. right, to have one African-American boy in 
a nursery school. But that's some perspective that it was considered shocking. She was also known for her egalitarian ways among the staff, too. So small domestic beginnings might create a bigger storm. I guess. So Jackie, in her official capacity as First Lady, had three major threads to her term in the White House. And in each of these areas, her goal was to increase the prestige and the sophistication of America in the eyes of the world, yes, but also among its own people. So let's talk about the first one. When Jackie had visited the White House as a child, she was very unimpressed. When she visited again after the birth of John Jr., she was still unimpressed. She thought the place was in great disrepair and that there was nothing in there that was put there before 1948. All the previous administrations had either given away or sold any of the antiques that were part of the White House in part of those years and part of the history. Her mission was to spruce up the White House and make it a symbol for everything that was great in America and worthy of its importance in the U.S. government. So Jackie was determined that it should be a living museum of American artifacts. And I would like to quote her from an interview when she was just beginning this project. And it really sounds sexist and it's kind of funny, but here it is. Every boy who comes here should see things that develop his sense of history. For the girls... The house should look beautiful and lived in. (laughs) They should see what a fire in the fireplace and pretty flowers can do for a house. The White House rooms should give both a sense of all that. Everything in the White House must have a reason for being there. It would be sacrilege merely to redecorate it. That's a word I hate. It must be restored. That's the uh, Kennedy brand talking because this woman loved history. She had already been doing the research on things that were in the White House before. She'd been studying pictures that were painted at the times trying to find items. And so to say that girls could find decorating tips, that's the brand talking, not her. Well, so the problem was that she did not have any more money because Jackie had spent the whole redecorating budget just on the family quarters upstairs. So she had to turn the Eisenhower's hotel-like decorating style into nice rooms for her children and tasteful rooms for them to live in. That's a problem. Rotro. What are you going to do with the state rooms with no money? Well, she had an idea. She formed a group called the Fine Arts Committee and charmed the exact right muckety-mucks to serve on it to make everyone who was anyone eager to help. Also, She recruited researchers and historians to work for her, too. She's not playing around. One major thing she found was the Resolute Desk, which had been given to President Hayes by Queen Victoria. It's made of timber from the HMS Resolute, a ship that was abandoned by the British in the Arctic. But Americans salvaged it, refurbished it, and gave it as a gift to England, and it might have been instrumental in avoiding a third war between Britain and America to show, no, no, we can still be friends. We don't have to be antagonistic, and it may have saved some bacon. So when that (laughs) ship was scrapped, Queen Victoria had it made, among other things, into a desk and gave it back to the American people. It is a serious piece of history, this ship. That is exactly the sort of thing Jackie meant. Boom, Mm -hmm. off it went to the Oval Office. 
Not all presidents since have used this desk, but I guarantee you it's the one you think of when you envision the Oval Office. It is an iconic desk. Well, once word got out, you know, in the press that she was doing this project, letters from people began to pour in. They knew where things were. This item that came from the White House, you know, was at their aunt's house. So Jackie and her team, first they wanted to get it donated. And if they couldn't get that, then they would buy the item and bring it to the White House. She ended up redoing every single room and restored each of them to represent a different era. Like the Red Room was done in the style of James Monroe's mid-1800s tenure. The Green Room was done in federal furnishings of the late 1700s. The Lincoln Bedroom was done from his own Victorian era. So each room had a different theme and a different look and a different era of history in the White House represented with actual artifacts. So more things like that found and installed with a backdrop of almost palace-like elegance and fabrics and trim and people seem to be falling over themselves to be involved in any way with this project. You know, you get things from the attic, you find it in a closet, you strong arm people, you charm people, you beg people. Also, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't even want to tell this story. <laughs> oh, please do. There was something she wanted, a silver service that was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and she badgered them and badgered them and badgered them and badgered them to let her borrow it. And she planned to actually use it. And the curator is like, you, that is not appropriate for this. So you're not going to use I mean, it needs to be preserved in a museum. And when he was away, she got someone else to send it to the White House. And she left a note that said, I have your silver service. You. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry to tell that story. She she broke brand big time and she left evidence. <laughs> All measures are fair in love, war, and house restoration. I don't really know. <laughs> well, further funding was insured by selling official guidebooks that gave background on the rooms and the objects, which visitors snapped up as affordable souvenirs. That's something else that she was missing from when she took that tour when she was 10 or 11 is that nobody seemed to know anything about the rooms. Well, I'm just walking through these random rooms. Why do I care? You know, she made it an exciting thing to read, an exciting thing to discover. So the White House you see today owes almost everything to the ideas and leadership of Jackie Kennedy. So this project is going on in the background, but I would like to jump ahead to sort of the finale before we move on to objective number two. The project was almost complete in less than two years. <laughs> and Jackie agreed, I can't imagine how scared she was actually, mm -hmm. agreed to conduct a tour of the White House for CBS television on Valentine's Day, 1962. And an audience of 56 million people turned on their TVs to hear the First Lady walk them through the White House and all the rooms that had been restored and all the things in them. She didn't have notes in her hand that I saw or a teleprompter. Mm -mm. No, and it wasn't edited. It was just going from one room to another. And she would pick up a vase, I guess it was a vase, and give the history of it. You know, what president had it, what country it came from, how they found it, how they knew that this item was out there from some picture somewhere that they had studied. She knew all this information about all of these items. And it just blows my mind. She started that whole thing in February of 61. That show 
was February of 62, right? Mm -hmm. I look around my house. I have a wall that's been half painted for three, maybe four. Okay, I think it was five. So, <laughs> But you do not have a committee and you do not have an army of designers and carpenters <laughs> and plasterers and painters and drapers and upholsterers. I mean, no. let's be real. I should let's make my house the showcase of everything that is Wider. <laughs> she was actually described as having a breathy little girl voice and a whim of iron. I like that. <laughs> whim of iron. I like that too. Even my own mother, when I, I remember years ago, I had asked just some question about the Kennedys and she was still under the impression that, you know, Jackie wasn't very bright because of the way she talked, you know, uh... just that, that breathy little girl voice. Oh, that was really good. Can we talk like this for the rest of the show? No, 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 we cannot. <laughs> so regardless of the opinion of the Vollenweider peanut gallery <laughs> and the Kennedy sisters who wondered where the heck she got that voice from, it was so well regarded by the American public that she actually received an honorary Emmy. So the second focus that Jackie Kennedy had in the White House was cultural. So in addition to turning the White House into a beautiful museum of American artifacts, she also turned it into a showcase for American musicians and artists. The way that kings and queens of old gave their patronage to people like Mozart, for example. She hosted state dinners that were evenings of anything from the opera to the ballet to jazz musicians. It wasn't just a dinner. And if it was a dinner, it was done by a French chef that she hired. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess the Eisenhowers were big on coleslaw. There's none of that in the Kennedy house. She changed the tables. There used to be long banquet tables. She changed them to more intimate eight to 10 person rounds to make people be able to talk and have a little more fun at these evenings that could be so very stuffy. So she changed the personality of the White House as well as its appearance. Um, she became a tastemaker and an authority. Art was fashionable again. Class was fashionable again. She was able to use her power to save some architecturally important buildings in Washington, D.C. from demolition. You will also read... Incorrectly, that Jackie Kennedy created the idea for a national performance space. And you could be forgiven for thinking that's true because it does bear the Kennedy name, the Kennedy Center. That was actually an idea put forth by Eleanor Roosevelt, who we have not yet covered, although we've <laughs> meant to like a million times. I know. Last, but certainly not least, she was brand ambassador number one for Team America out there in the wide world. So she traveled with her husband to places in South America and Central America where she spoke Spanish to the people and also to Europe. Most famously, of course, her 1961 trip to France, where the public and Charles de Gaulle himself response to Jackie led her husband to say, quote, let me introduce myself. I'm the man who accompanied Jackie Kennedy to Paris, and I have enjoyed it. <laughs> Did he? I'm not sure. There seems to be a feeling that he might have had some sour grapes about that. Yeah, that kind of statement could go either way. It's like, whoa, I'm supposed to be the center of attention here, but it's not me. It's Jackie. Well, it was a PR triumph. Absolute triumph. So whatever. JFK. <laughs> On that trip, she had um, always admired Charles de Gaulle. But when she came back from it, she said that she found him a bitter, snobbish man. 
Although she did like the lavish dinner at Versailles. I would also <laughs> like a lavish dinner at Versailles. Miss Jackie. So uh, on a visit to Russia, where Mr. Khrushchev and her husband were at odds, this is the beginning of the Cold War, and relations are not good, not good, not good. Jackie actually charmed Nikita Khrushchev into giving her one of the puppies from their space program. So you know what? All hell could be breaking loose, you know, nuclearly. I know that's not a word, but I have a puppy from the space program. (laughs) It's an indicator of how she did her research. You know, other political wives might just small talk, and this was small talk. But she had done her research. She knew the United States and Russia were in the space race and how far ahead Russia was, that they had these dogs that they were raising to go up into space. So she mentioned it and she said, I realized that you had puppies with one of these dogs and it showed up at the White House like six weeks later. That's pretty cool. Well, she's making friends and influencing people. And we will talk about the visit with Queen Elizabeth in our coverage of The Crown over on our other podcast, The Recapery. I just want to say the visit to England was not glorious like the Paris trip had been. Jackie Kennedy was quoted as saying that the Queen was quote, heavy weather. But I do want to get into something serious here, which was alluded to in that show. Both JFK and Jackie had been almost from their first days in the White House under, I'm going to put like this air quotes, treatment from this (laughs) quack doctor named Max Jacobson, who everyone in the know just referred to as Dr. Feelgood. So already this is inspiring confidence, right? This is ominous. (laughs) Dr. Feelgood. I'm sure he's reputable. He injected them and other famous clients, I mean, a whole giant list of famous clients with a cocktail of speed, tranquilizers, vitamins, human placenta, steroids, God knows what. Could be detergent for all I know. I don't know. Much of JFK's behavior up to and during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War in general and Vietnam and the Berlin Wall, I mean, he had a lot to deal with. He was dealing with chemicals of all sorts running through his system the whole time. He had been getting treatments from other doctors for his whole life for his other ailments. So he was already, even before he met Dr. Feelgood, on this kind of toxic combination of steroids and um, painkillers. So enter Dr. Feelgood. I can only imagine what was floating around in his system. Now, I imagine, though Jackie was not as much in the public eye with her decision making, that she was also suffering from serious effects. And this also might not have escaped modern news coverage, but 1960s America did not have this information. Um, Internal pressure from some of the security services had to be brought to bear to stop JFK from taking these drugs. In addition, let's speak of things that will defy modern news coverage. JFK routinely slept with employees on a sort of schedule, swimming with one, upstairs with another. It was worked around Jackie's schedule, too. And she was in a horrible place. Her whole marriage with regard to this behavior, evidently exacerbated by these shots, which gave him a higher sex drive than he even had already. I know Angie Dickinson and Marilyn Monroe were coming up a back elevator. I don't like all these things we're turning up under these rocks. I mean, (laughs) can we get back to the fairy tale? In fact, you know what? Let's get back to something positive right now. Jackie 
was also sent as a goodwill ambassador without the president, notably to India and Pakistan, where she took her sister, Lee. Everyone screamed, Mrs. Kennedy, Amarki Rani, which means Queen of America. She could go in all innocence as a friend of the country, while JFK would have had to be stern and official. It was a good strategy. You know, you send the PR arm of the White House, right? The photos are gorgeous. I think the trip did what the U.S. hoped it would do. So Jackie, by being herself, the public curated version of herself, (laughs) I guess I should say, um, raised the world's opinion of the United States and sort of instilled a sense of pride here at home. For real. And I just really wish we had time to get into all that was going on during this. I mean, it was a brief three-year period of the Kennedy White House. And I I think we just have to boil it all down to novelty and change and progress and grievous mistakes and conflict. And it was a lot. It was was maybe too much for some parts of America to deal with, which, of course, we will talk about in part two. But uh, I can't even fathom the mood of the country and like all that was happening in the world. No. And they were still raising their family. You know, they were still a family unit, even though they were dealing with all this work stuff, I guess, is, you know, they had their work lives and their work personas, and then they still had their family life. You know, they had rented a house in Virginia so she could go and ride her horses and just hide from the public with the kids. And Jack was actually an attentive father. He was very playful with them. This was the sweetest thing. He used to tell them stories and Jackie wrote them all down and gave it to Caroline and she still has it. Hmm. That's really cute. I know. Okay, here's another little story. Not as cute as that one. But evidently, (laughs) he kept a drawer of little toy airplanes and another drawer full of little toy horses. And anytime the kids surprised him, he would hand them one, like a little treat. Cute. And also, there's a funny, awesome picture of the leader of the free world carrying his daughter's doll sassafras while walking with other world leaders. (laughs) (laughs) It's an awful lot like uh, William and Kate and their kids. Oh, yeah. You know, they're out in public and they're adorable. They're an adorable family. And that's the Kennedys that the public saw. Well, after all those years in the spotlight, Jackie was pregnant again. Hooray, hooray. And this baby would be the first born to a sitting president since I want to say, and the odds are with me, Francis Cleveland's children as the other, quote, other young First lady, um, anyway, I don't know who, but it, it's been since the 19th century that there'd been a baby born to a sitting president. So Jackie decided to take it a lot easier. She limited her engagements. She spent time with the children. She nested. It was, um, you know, protective. She's never had an easy pregnancy and they've never made it to full term. Again, at eight months, Jackie went into labor. Patrick Bouvier Kennedy was delivered by another emergency C-section. He was about five weeks early. He was born on August 7th, weighing four pounds and 10 ounces. Unfortunately, while most of him was healthy, his lungs weren't functioning. It's a pretty common thing with newborn babies. And actually, this is my son had exactly this thing. So I'm 
I might get choked up here a little bit. It's called respiratory distress syndrome. Now it's treatable. Unfortunately, in Patrick's case, it was not. He was transferred to a children's hospital, which is what they would do today. They put him in a high oxygen chamber. Uh, today, they'd put them on a ventilator. The difference is today, they'd give them a, something called surfactant, and it would kind of work as a lubricant to the lungs and get them functioning properly. That wasn't the case back then. And he died at two days old. I mean, it's exactly what happened to my kid. Ugh. Well, <sighs> modern medicine saves a lot of children that wouldn't have been saved even as recently ago as the 1960s. <laughs> so the nation mourned. His loss did energize the medical research community to find treatments for this condition to save future babies. So I guess in that respect, his death was not in vain. His fame was used for good, I guess. That's the only silver lining I can think of. And finally, at last, Jack and Jackie seem to have finally grown close in their marriage. It's been 10 years. I hate that it took the death of their child to do it, but somehow it did. Well, Jack was there, unlike for Arabella, you know, he was out of the country, out of sight, out of mind. But this case, he was there. He, he, you know, he knew what it was like to be a parent. It did. It brought them a lot closer together, unlike how it had driven them apart with Arabella. Jackie couldn't even go to the funeral because she was still recuperating. He had to handle all the funeral arrangements. Both of them... Um, went through a little bit of a scandal, although one of them was hardly even a scandal. Jackie, to refresh her mind, went to Greece and um, was photographed traveling here and there with a man named Aristotle Onassis. And it was as innocent as it could be. Do you not agree? I don't know. Oh, no, I, it was totally innocent. Lee had been friends with him. Um, she had actually been with him on a cruise when she had heard about... Patrick's death and invited Jackie. So yeah, totally um, recuperative. It wasn't that she was running away this time. Um, it was just for her to heal. Yeah, completely innocent. Although public opinion was a little fickle, like, I can't believe the first lady is dancing with Europeans in red pants. And I'm like, whatever. <laughs> you guys are obsessed with people's freaking pants. Um, anyway, the more seriously, the Profumo scandal, which we will also cover on the recapery, oh, was happening over in England and reached its little fingers over to JFK in America. And let's see, I'm going to condense that to spies, moles, sex, and government officials. <laughs> But between the two of them, their relationship seemed to have been, by all accounts, utterly transformed. There was a respect for her contributions that he'd never had before. Also, more cynically, re-election was coming. <laughs> um, I don't know. And he said to her when she got back, I need to go to Texas for a little campaigning. And I could sure use some of your magic about right now, Jackie. And she said, I will do anything you want for your campaign. And in her day planner, across the dates, November 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, 1963, Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy simply wrote the word Texas. And that, my friends, will be the end of part one of our coverage of Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. We would like to say thank you so much to all of you who have told friends and relatives about the History Chicks. We have recently received so much communication from people telling us that they heard about us through a friend. 
And Susan and I just want to tell you it means a lot to us, and we really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the Pinterest board for Jackie Kennedy. It was, as I said earlier, one of the very easiest to ever put together, and I was restraining myself. So every day I could probably add 100 more. The end song is The Most Popular Girl in the World by Ari Shine, courtesy of music.mevio.com. Most popular girl in the world She's the most popular